You're listening to BuddhistGeeks.com. October 22nd, 2007. Episode 42, From the Point of View of Insight Meditation. In this episode, Gwen Bell continues her discussion with Buddhist teacher and author Sharon Salzberg. They discuss Sharon's most recent written work, as well as the Insight Meditation Society, which she helped found in the mid-70s. This is part two of a three-part series. This episode of Buddhist Geeks is sponsored by the Do No Harm Movement. To find out more about the Do No Harm Movement and to receive a free Do No Harm bumper sticker and wristband, please visit www.donoharm.us. I know that you write for O Magazine or have written. Is it different writing for a secular publication, if you will, versus a, a spiritual publication? Uh, it's very different to write for a, a secular publication and in ways that I really appreciate and that I think have helped me grow in lots of levels. I think the first time I did that, I did an op-ed piece for msnbc.com. And I think it's the first time I ever wrote anything that didn't use the word Buddha, Buddhism, Buddhist, uh, you know, or anything like that. And it was very good. And when I write for O, occasionally I do, you know, say in the Buddhist tradition, so that. But mostly I'm, I'm writing about values. You know, I'm writing about beginning again or starting over or compassion or modulating our intention or something that, you know, is not confined to Buddhism. It's just wisdom or an intelligent way to live. But of course, for me, the natural way to express it all is within Buddhist concepts. And so it's been a good discipline, you know, not to take anything for granted. Have you met Oprah? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I just wonder if she, um, she just seems like the kind of person that ha has a an unfettered look about her, yet has all of this energy swirling around her all the time. So did you, did you get a sense like that she's, do you think she's a meditator? <laughs> I think she's actually a very, very spiritual person. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I have actually several questions from the book. One part, you said that you felt hammered by the banality of your own mind. That phrase really struck me. And I think you kept thinking about you were going to go into town and buy something and you kept playing it around in your mind several times or you were wondering whether or not you wanted to go back to the states or how you were composing letters in your mind about going home or whatever so hammered by the banality of your own mind can you speak a little bit more on that i, I think people often have a lot of concepts and expectations about what will happen when they meditate and i certainly did and you know, i went all the way to india I was looking for, I went because I was looking for a meditation teacher. I was looking for a technique. And, and I also had all of these ideas that once I broke through or once I transcended or whatever, they would all be very sublime. And the run of my thoughts was a lot like, should I go into town, <laughs> you know, and buy something? Or will I ever go back to America and when? And, you know, what should I say when I write this letter? It was, it was quite like that. And it often is, you know, so what I was really talking about was the confrontation with my expectations. You know, people say so often things like, well, I can't meditate because I can't stop my thinking. Or I can't meditate. I live in New York City. It's too noisy. Or I'm going through too much. Or this is too hard. Or I'm too tired. And 
from the point of view, certainly the point of view of, of mindfulness or Vipassana or insight practice, uh, it's not that you can't meditate. You may not, and it may be tough. You know, you, you may go through some difficult spaces, but it's a perfectly valid, important, profound meditation, even if you have a lot of thinking, even if your thoughts are very trivial, even if your feelings are very difficult. It's actually fine because from the point of view of that meditation style or technique, what happens is much less important than how we relate to what happens. So you could have anything going on and the degree of awareness, wakefulness, connection, loving kindness one brings to bear with it is what is really important. And of course, I didn't have a sense of that at all. I wouldn't have believed it anyway uh, because I was so judgmental. And, and I was uh, very busy evaluating myself, like, I'm the only one who's thinking. No one else in this room is thinking. And I'm just sitting here having all these stupid thoughts, and they're all sitting there in bliss. And even if they were thinking, they'd be thinking thoughts of loving kindness. They wouldn't be thinking these really trivial thoughts like me. It was really uprooting some of that that was most important, some of that judgment. I wonder how much, how much of a correlation there is between suffering and faith. And this is kind of getting back to some points in the book where you, you describe your childhood and, and what you went through at a very young age. And it's so similar to my own path. And the reason that I actually started looking for a spiritual practice was because I was searching for tools to handle my suffering, which makes it seem like, oh, I'll just put it in a pretty little package, put a bow on it, put it over there and, and it'll be fine. And it definitely was Australia, now that I'm remembering, that you faced a lot of your demons regarding your mother's death and, and your father's uh, sudden denouement, I guess you can say. Oh, yes, Australia. <laughs> I think it takes a lot to step out of what's conventional, what's ordinary, what is familiar, what the culture seems to define as happiness, as ultimate happiness. It takes a lot to move away. And for most people, it is suffering. It's very easy to live in a stupor. It's very easy to be half asleep and to really be counting on acquisition for our deepest sense of happiness. You know, if only I had this and if only I had that. And we hear that message every single day over and over and over again. So we do need a lot to step away. And that has a lot to do with faith as well, you know, because it's courage and not certainty by any means, but some inkling that things can be different and not just different in the abstract, but different for us, you know, for me, for you, that it can be real. You know, it's easy to say, well, the Buddha lived, you know, 2,500 years ago in another culture and got enlightened under a tree. That's all very well. But, you know, I live in Manhattan, you know, it's not going to happen for me. And that wouldn't be a surprise. Or to kind of say, well, isn't it fantastic? The Buddha got enlightened under a tree, you know, and never take the next step, which is well, what does that mean for me here in Manhattan today, you know, with everything I'm going through. And so that move toward trying to take something we might hold as an abstraction and try to make it real takes a lot. It's a big, big, big step. And I think it's the biggest step actually. And often, often it's some kind of suffering that provokes that step because we need to wake up and it's not easy. It's not always suffering. I used to think it was always suffering, you know. I, I don't think so so much anymore because some people, I think, are motivated by a kind of almost like crazy curiosity about life. They just want to understand things. 
but I think it's largely suffering. And it was the suffering, you know, the Buddha witnessed in, in the legend of his enlightenment with the four heavenly messengers. You know, when they say the Buddha left the palace grounds for the first time when he was uh, 29 and saw an old person and a sick person and a corpse and then a mendicant, it was his call to awakening to see that, oh, life isn't always so pretty. You know, it's, it's difficult. It's challenging. That question has fascinated me forever, and, and it's part of what inspired me to try to write the book on faith. I should say, first of all, in some of my really difficult moments of writing the book, I was talking to the writer Susan Griffin, um, who's a fabulous writer and actually a fabulous writing teacher, and she said a few things to me that were very helpful. She said, you've got to stop thinking of yourself as the person who's writing this book and think of yourself as the first person who gets to read this book. And that was fabulous advice. And then she said to me, a lot of people would assume that you write a book about a topic like this because you really understand it and you want to impart your expertise. But more likely, you write a book like this because you need to explore the topic and the writing itself is part of the exploration. And that was totally true. So part of what I felt I needed to explore was this idea that, you know, if everybody suffers, which is what we see in life when we really pay attention, big or little, that, that everybody goes through dissatisfaction and sorrow and loss and change and all of that, why is it that some people come out of it, like Deepama as an example, with so much faith and connection to others and caring and love, and other people, if they emerge at all, are broken or bitter, angry forever, and I wanted to know, you know, for myself and, and in my work, like what happens in there for some people with all of that suffering? And that that was a big motivation in, in looking at the quality of faith. You quote someone as saying that suffering is like a gas. It'll fill whatever container it's in. And I think that's a really striking uh, metaphor or quote because sometimes I think, well, White men, privileged white men, they have it so much better, and they don't really know what it's like to go through X. You know, oh, they've they've never menstruated, or you know, they don't know my pain. You know, but uh, I think that's um, really naive of me to think. Um, however, in the moments of of pain or agony, we often we feel very isolated, and we think I'm the only one suffering to this degree. It can, it it does fill whatever container it happens to be in. I think it was Viktor Frankl who said that, and you have to look it up, but I think that's who said it. And I think it's important because, of course, his history. Some people have, you know, exactly the reaction that you have, that you described, and other people have the opposite reaction, interestingly enough, that they feel ashamed that they're suffering so much, and they know they're not in a concentration camp, and they're not in Bosnia, and, you know, they're not in Rwanda, and it's just a breakup or something like that. And so... They think, why in the world, you know, am I so devastated by something? Look at what's going on in the world. And, you know, people are, are having it so tough. And, and here I am. It's just like I'm overcome. I can't go on. This is, I'm so weak. I'm so terrible. I'm so stupid. And, and that, I think, was it was to counter that. That was my motivation for putting in that quotation, you know, because if it's one suffering, and it's overwhelming. That's what's true. You know, it doesn't usually help that much to think, well, I'm not in the Sudan, you know, because <laughs> we're not and we're still hurting. Yeah. Is meditation the only way? 
<laughs> well, I would hesitate to say anything is the only way, but it's a good way. You know, I think some of the qualities I really honor and prize about meditation are that it's personal, it's private, it's independent. You know, if you're in the middle of like a contentious discussion at work, you don't have to say, excuse me a minute, close your eyes, sit in full lotus, drag out your altar, you know, start burning incense. You know, it's like you breathe and it's there for you as, as a resource, as a support. And I really love that about it, that it's something we incorporate so deeply that it's something we can live and not just think about in a more distant way. And it's, it's so it's very self-empowering in that way. Sometimes people hear the Buddha's teaching about right effort, and one of the things they think it's it's kind of grim or laborious or something like that. But the truth is that it's so entirely self-empowering because here's the Buddha saying, you can do this. You know, here are the tools. You can turn your life around. You can transform your mind. You can relate very differently to your suffering. You can relate very different differently to your community, to your world. Here are the tools. All you need to do is use them. You know, instead of saying, well, you have to follow me everywhere and you have to remember every word I ever said and you have to, you know, be sort of a, a slave and, and you can't think for yourself anymore and and you can't ask any questions. He said, here are the tools. Just use them. See for yourself. And uh, I think that's really quite magnificent. You know, you often hear teachers talk about, don't trust me, don't take me for my word, but go out there and find out for yourself. I guess that's that's one thing that drew me onto the path because the ex the exploratory nature of it, kind of the adventure of it. You also mentioned you don't have to even leave the country. You don't you don't have to go out there seeking uh, spirituality because it's it's all around you. But but then most teachers that say that have had these like really amazing experiences in India or in my case Japan or, or wherever. So I, I don't know. I wonder if that that adventure or that exploration is part of uh, some of our paths. Well, sometimes I think it could be actually, but. You know, having co-founded the center, the Insight Meditation Society in Barry, Massachusetts, where, you know, over 30 years ago now, and I've just seen all kinds of people come and, and do very uh, intensive and kind of comprehensive practice. I see that it doesn't really matter that it's not in Asia somewhere. And I guess the idea is that to one degree or another, we need to be able to step out of our responsibilities, of our normal habits, of our normal distractions. That could be for 20 minutes a day, you know. I'm a tremendous believer in daily practice. I think that can be transformative, but it's hard to do, you know. And it's it's easier to do if we have some kind of platform from which to do it, either an intensive retreat or a trip to Asia where everything gets redefined, because it's not operating, the culture is not operating on the same paradigm that, that we're used to. And things also really aren't on our terms any, anymore. You know, we can't put things just so. I'd love to hear about the co-founding, how you um, made that, that decision. It seems like it was probably a pretty pivotal decision. The re repercussions or the ramifications of having a, a place where people go to seek out spirituality is pretty uh, big decision. It's a pretty big decision, <laughs> but I don't know if this is just me, you know, or, or the way my mind works, but I look back on it, not that I had such a tremendous sense of vision, like, oh, look at, you know, everything that can happen. And it was more that, you know, Joseph and Jack and I were together at Naropa 
in the summer of 1974. And then people would write letters and say, well, would you come and teach a retreat? You know, I can get together some people and a staff like a cook, you know. And, you know, and so different combinations of the three of us would, would go off. Sometimes all three of us, sometimes two of us, and teach a retreat. And at the end of that retreat, we never knew if there'd be another retreat till the next letter came. So it was very kind of grassroots and evolving. And one day somebody said to us, why don't you start a retreat center of your own? It would be like a sacred site in this country. It would be a place where all the energy that gets developed as people practice together wouldn't then have to disperse. And we thought that sounded good. And most of the energy for that at the time was on the East Coast. So we looked up and down the East Coast and finally found this place in Barry, Massachusetts. And we moved in on Valentine's Day of 1976. And we still didn't know. We used to have all these conversations like, we can just sell it in a year, right? <laughs> you know, we'll just get rid of it. And we, when we opened up the doors, we charged $6.50 a day for people um, because the teachers work on a, a Donna donation system. So all the expenses we calculated at $6.50 a day. But we had like nothing budgeted for, you know, anything ever breaking. It's like, who knew that roofs could leak or, you know, that you'd be responsible for fixing them or boilers, you know, like, oh my God. And we quickly ran out of money. And, you know, it was things like, you know, somebody who was on staff at the time at IMS, his father had given him a car, so he sold the car so we could buy food, you know, things like that. It was very uh, different back then. It, it was just felt like doing the next thing and doing the next thing and making lots of mistakes and trying to rectify them. And, you know, rather than this kind of enormous global vision of like, look where this can go. And, you know, I have a five-year plan. So within five years, we'll be in five countries, you know, and like, it, it was nothing like that. What's some of the, the hardest moments? I mean, that doesn't seem like it was too hard a moment for you. I mean, it seems like probably the cycles of having a retreat center or being a teacher, were there some real low moments for you at, at IMS? Oh, there have been many, <laughs> actually. Well, it's a huge learning curve, you know, certainly for me and I think for all of my colleagues. I didn't really understand organizations and kind of the nature of leadership. It was a huge mystery and and the organization evolved as organizations do from one which was flatter, you could say, you know, like in the beginning, you know, we just moved in and we were a bunch of kids basically, you know, and Jack Cornfields had all of this artwork and all these Buddha statues he'd bought when he was in the Peace Corps in Thailand. And his mother emptied out the attic one day and shipped them all off. And we ran around saying, where should we put this Buddha? Where should we put that Buddha? Or we used to answer the phone if someone called or, you know, everybody did everything. And it was very informal, very unstructured. And then as time went on and more and more people were coming to practice and the courses were getting bigger and we had to kind of position ourselves in the world of the United States and the staff was growing as well. And it wasn't like a little family enterprise anymore. It really needed to have a much more sophisticated life as an organization. And, you know, we've done that. And I think it's an amazing place, but it hasn't always been easy to make that evolution. You didn't have a plan then, but do you see a plan for the future of it? Or is it all, is it very organic? I mean, does it change daily or, or is there sort of a, 
a, a trend that you're seeing? I wouldn't say I have a plan. Someone may have a plan. <laughs> no, I mean, we, I mean, we have strategic plans, you know, actually as an organization. But I think the kind of core values of IMS are, are to provide, for the most part, an intensive retreat opportunity. And it's a fantastic opportunity, whether it's two days or, or two months, to really leave it all behind and to in the best possible way, focus on yourself, you know, not through self-consciousness or self-judgment, but out of the greatest love and compassion for yourself, giving yourself those days where you don't have to do anything but pay attention in a guided way, you know, so you really feel helped, helped along and supported in that. And some retreats are not completely silent and intensive. We have a retreat for families every year. People bring their kids. We have a retreat for teenagers every year. And I think what's happening and what will continue to happen for the future is different kinds of retreats for different populations of people. We have a retreat pretty much every other year for scientists. A lot of people doing research on meditation or interested in neuroscience or cognitive science. And You know, I, I think it's going to be pretty organic in terms of its evolution, but I suspect that in addition to the retreats that are just open to anybody to come along, there'll probably be more and more retreats where people have a kind of specialized interest of some kind. We also have an, another center there, or part of IMS is the Forest Refuge, where people can go for a long-term retreat that is supported by a teacher, but it isn't so structured. You know, if you do a retreat at the retreat center, um, there's a schedule, you know, and a bell rings and says, okay, now it's time to do sitting meditation, now it's time to do walking meditation. And some people are, or some people at some times are tremendously supported by that structure and other people really want much more independence. And that's what happens at the Forest Refuge. This has been a presentation of BuddhistGeeks.com, copyright 2007. Music in this podcast provided by C4Chaos. For more great music and writing, visit his blog at www.c4chaos.com. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. 
Love to see you there.